0: Hey, what's up, storytellers? We have author Amy Rose Capetta on the show today, and you will not believe all the incredible crafting tips that Amy shares. But before we hop right into her introductions, I want to thank our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts for sponsoring today's episode and for supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in writing for children and young adults and created a thoughtfully curated series of podcast episodes and personal essays to give you as much value as possible for your writing journey. Over these couple of months, the alumni and faculty from VCFA's MFA in Writing programs have been sharing their most intimate stories about the life of a writer. From topics exploring the heart and the art of writing, to overcoming imposter syndrome and breaking out of creative blocks, to actionable step-by-steps on improving your craft. These stories will guide and boost your morale, and they have been resonating deeply with so many of our storytellers. If you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, please be sure to head over to 88 cupsofteacom VCFA. And I encourage you to learn more about VCFA's different MFAs that help you with your writing over at VCFA.edu. I also want to take a moment to shout out one of our storytellers, Kayla Lane 188, who was so sweet to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Kayla wrote, I recently started listening and I love the variety of information this podcast provides. Lately, I've been dealing with the stress of applying for college and reaching for a career in the literary world. The information I've learned from 88 Cups of Tea has given me hope that I could make it, so for that, I'm extremely grateful. I actually listened to this while researching potential internships near my college choices. Kayla, thank you so much for your support and being a part of our community. We are all rooting for you here and wish you the best of luck applying to colleges and internships. You've got this. Psst. Hey, listeners. I've been noticing that we've had a bunch of new reviews and ratings over on iTunes, so thank you so much for taking the time to leave some love. And if you haven't had the chance to yet, please keep them coming. Every time I read one of your comments, I gobble them up like cheese fries. It definitely boosts the morale and puts the biggest smile on my face. So thank you so much in advance. And now on to today's guest, Amy Rose Capetta is the award-winning young adult fantasy, sci-fi, and mystery author of Echo After Echo, The Brilliant Death, best-selling novel Once and Future, co-written with her partner Corey McCarthy, and her highly anticipated novel The Storm of Life, her sequel to The Brilliant Death. She's also the co-founder of the Rainbow Writers Workshop, the first-ever workshop for young adult and middle-grade LGBTQIAP writers. In our conversation, Amy shares how she fell in love with storytelling and how she turned that passion into her writing career. She spills plot structure exercises that will help you see the bigger picture to move past roadblocks in your story. We dive into how a writing MFA helped Amy discover confidence in recognizing and trusting her writing voice, strengthen her revision process, and find a supportive writing community that's very similar to the arts communities that she loves. Further into our conversation, we discuss the inspiration behind Amy's past novels and her writing process. She shares crafting advice on how to begin a story when you have too many ideas in your head, or as she likes to put it, how to turn off the creative faucet. Amy also gets into the nitty gritty about writing a large cast of characters and how to not distract the writers from the main story. And she shares incredible tips for aspiring queer writers. For any of you who'd love tips on world building, be sure to pay special attention towards the end as Amy shares her world building method for developing complicated plots. I have a feeling you're going to love all the craft advice in this episode, so let's just jump right in. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to have Amy Rose Capetta with us today. Amy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am so good. I'm so excited about this. Let's talk about when you first fell in love with storytelling.
1: The first memory I have of being completely married to a story is in first grade when I carried a copy of... The never-ending Story around with me most of the year. Like at school, I always had it with me. It was as much a comfort object as it was a story I was constantly reading. And it was one of those beautiful copies that was printed in two colors of ink, red and green. And it had a cloth binding with a beautiful orange symbol on the top. And it was just a very magical object in addition to being a very magical story. And I think that that was the first time that I was drawn. I I liked to read from the time that I learned how, but that was a story that I really couldn't let go of, literally.
0: (laughs) From there, were you realizing just the story itself, or did you understand that this was an actual human being who created the story and it was possible for you to be that person that, you know, you looked up to? I think it took me a little
1: while, a couple years to realize that an author was a thing that a person could aspire to be. But it was very funny because even that I didn't really want to know too much about the authors behind my stories, I liked keeping it very mysterious. (laughs) Um, I like to just read and imagine and be in that world and not know too much of the behind the curtain information, which I think is interesting because that's that's shifted a little bit. I think as a writer now, I'm more interested in other writers and their process and that end of things. But as a kid and as a reader, I liked everything to be very magical and mysterious.
0: How are your parents? With you growing up, were they very strict about like, okay, light's out now, no more reading after this time, don't sneak and read the book past midnight? My parents loved
1: that I was a reader, but like they had to stop sending me to my room if I got in trouble because I would just sit in there and read and they realized that that was best and not any form of punishment. We did have like that cutoff time at bedtime where I was supposed to stop reading, but I think they knew I was still reading with a flashlight I was very much a reader at a young age, and I think that a lot of that did come from my parents modeling that behavior and my whole family. We're very much a family of readers. My entire family will go on vacation, and we'll all just sit in a room and be reading together, and that's sort of like our family activity. That's so cute! We're, we're those nerds, and, and that just feels really natural to me, and I, it took me a long time to realize that that's not what everybody does when they get together. <laughs> I'd go over to have dinner at someone else's house and I'd be like, okay, but when do we all read? It's so magical. It actually just started happening in my little family. We have a seven-year-old who's just getting, really getting into reading this year and uh, would start to, at bedtime, crawl into bed with us and realize that they could extend bedtime (laughs) by um, like a full half hour if they just quietly read and they would just write in the middle of the bed with all three of us reading and I was like, this is the
0: best this is so cute. Oh my God, stop. That was how your family upbringing was. How were your parents with, what do they do and with their jobs? My dad is
1: an MA lawyer. <laughs> when I was a little kid for a long time, I didn't understand that he didn't go to court and because that's what I thought lawyers did. So it took a while. And then my mom was a kindergarten teaching assistant for many, many years um, and just recently retired from that. And she loved it. It was so cute. We lived in the littlest uh, New England town and everyone in town knew my mom and because their kids had all gone through the school system and many of them had had her or they knew her. And so it was all very much like even when I go home, they recently moved from that little town. But even when I go back there now, I can go to the post office and someone will will see my name you know, and say, oh, you must be Julie Capetta's daughter. How's she doing? I mean, she loved what she did and and was very much involved with education and and, and was a big proponent of reading. Um, My dad is probably the biggest reader I know. And that's a big language in our family. When it came time to figure out what to do, my family was very open minded about what that might look like, in large part because I know that my dad was someone who sort of followed a path that had been laid out for him and did the things that people told him he should do and went through all of that and, and felt that he wanted us to have the potential to follow what we cared about and, and, and find a way to make a living out of that. And, and yes, it was, there, there still was the practical element of you have to have a job, you have to find a way to, to support yourself. But if what you really want to be pursuing is writing or my little sister uh, has done a lot of acting and directing, she lives in New York and that's her big passion. And so if that's the sort of thing that you want to do, There was very much a freedom to pursue that and encouragement to pursue that from a really young age. And for my entire family, my grandma used to uh, cut articles out of the newspaper whenever she saw something about a writer, particularly a young writer. She would cut them out and mail them to me. For like 20 years, she did this. It was so sweet.
0: Oh my God. That's incredible parenting right there. I really admire your parents, especially just hearing how your dad went through his own uh, experience of, oh, you should do this and him breaking out of that Cycle. I think that's incredible that your dad was able to recognize that and not want you guys to feel muffled or stifled with what you were, you know, your God-given gifts, I guess you could say.
1: I think that he knew that it takes time to develop those things, too, because when you're always putting something to the side and saying, maybe I'll get to it someday, or if you only ever get to treat it as a hobby in your own mind, you don't necessarily get the permission from yourself to take it seriously and and put that investment into it. And I think it's really amazing when I meet people who had to give themselves that permission. I want to find ways to pass that permission on to other people, even when I'm not you know, their parents and have no real right to give it to them. I want to say to everyone I meet, you can be a writer. This is possible for you. I think one of the most delightful things about writing is that everybody's bad at it when they start.
0: Yes, that's so true.
1: I think that's great. There are no writing prodigies. There's no moment when you're five or 10 or 20 where someone looks at you and says, okay, this is the person who's got it and this is the person who doesn't. That's not how writing works. Everyone has the potential to develop their skills and the ability to tell stories because it's wired into our brains. It's wired into the way we see the world and think and process. It's how we shape our experiences. It's how we shape our memories. So everyone has an innate storytelling ability. And if that's something you want to develop, you can. To look at people and be able to say, you know, there is that permission is more important than any measure of talent at first, because talent is something that is all about development and process and figuring out what works for you and what kind of stories you need to tell and how you can tell them best. It's really not a case of people are good at writing or bad at writing. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. While we're on this topic, what about for those who got past that first step of recognizing that everyone writes a shitty first draft, now there's like that messy middle, then what do you do? I have a couple different things because it kind of depends on what
1: the sticking point. So if the sticking point is just plot and you don't know what happens next. So usually I find that if I hit a point where something's not working, it's actually because something stopped working maybe 20 or 50 pages earlier um, and I need to backtrack and find the last point that I feel like the story was really working and maybe clear a path backwards and then go forward from there. Sometimes it's just a question of not being able to see the forest for the trees. And I will do some exercises to help me see the bigger story usually structure exercises. So I'll write a synopsis, which sounds so boring, you guys, but synopses (laughs) are your friend. (laughs) Um, I swear, this is ridiculous, but it was the difference for me between stories that sounded really cool in my head but never quite panned out on paper to actually being able to write books was being able to tell the story on one piece of paper. Oh, wow. Was being able to go from the beginning to the end, have all of the major pieces, the characters... The plot but also the themes and the settings just woven in in a way that i could see the whole story so if i had that big picture if i had the forest all of a sudden then I could get back into the, you know, let myself get back into the trees. Synopsis is one way to do it. I also use structure for a little bit. Those are usually screenwriting tools. My partner actually has developed like this really amazing one that is screenwriting tools adapted for novelists. And they taught me to use that. And it's really revolutionized my, my story structure. So I, I go to that a lot of the time too, if I get stuck, because then it's like, when you're really beating your head on the little pieces of your story that aren't working, it can be really fun to let that go, let the scene go, let the chapter go, the stuff that is really dragging you down and just feel like you're kind of splashing in the puddles of your story again. One of my solutions is have more fun. If you're not having fun, find a way to get back to, or I mean, if you're telling a really dark story, that might not work, but find a way to get back to what really brought you to that story in the first place, the things you care about in it. And I do, I do highly recommend fun if that works for, <laughs> for your particular manuscript, because I feel like readers can tell when we're not as in it as we want
0: to be. And, and so letting yourself find a new way back in can be really helpful can I jump in super quick? So you're mentioning the resource that your partner developed for the adaptation for screenwriting for novelists. Where do people find that?
1: My partner, Corey McCarthy, is also a YA author and has a picture book coming out soon and does all kinds of really cool creative things. And they share that with their students. They are a professor at VCFA, Vermont College of Fine Arts, and also uh, workshops
0: that they teach and everything. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. That's so cool. I'm gonna rewind a little bit when you mentioned the one-page forest. Is that what you came up with or is that something that you learned elsewhere?
1: It was a tool of publishing that I ended up adapting to the creative process because people are always asking you for synopsis and at first it seems really onerous to distill your story like that. But then once you get past the fact that you're just trying to really, really focus on what it is you're trying, the story you're trying to tell. I think that a lot of times the drafting process is frustrating because there's no way a first draft or even a second draft is going to be the story that's in our heads. And so letting yourself get back to the story that's in your head and really see it, can help you write closer to that. And also it can help show you when that story is changing because sometimes we tell ourselves that the story is a certain thing, you know, we sit down to write and we're like, okay, well this story is about, I'm trying to think of an example of when this happened to me. I was writing this book, Echo After Echo, and I told myself, well, it's a a queer love story and it's set in a theater. And it's going to be very beautiful. And it's going to be about making art and love. And it's going to be that kind of really romantic story. And and then I just started out. And I didn't really plan it. And then I hit a part where one of the characters got murdered. And I didn't know that was going to happen. So I had to step back and be like, okay, what is this story actually? Why did that happen when I was sitting down to write? And so I started to plan it out. And I started to really let myself see what the story was going to be beyond the relationship between the main characters, which is what I had been focused on. And that relationship was central and it remained unchanged throughout the drafts that I did and throughout developing that story and and working on that synopsis. But there was so much else that was growing and shifting around that central relationship that I needed to start seeing because otherwise I would have just been sort of like trying to write my way forward and tripping over murders, (laughs) which seemed like a much more painful process than it needed to be. I was like, let let me take a minute and think about what this is actually, what the story is actually going to be.
0: That was really helpful. So thank you for laying that all out to get back to when you realized that you wanted to be an author. And what steps did you take to make it a reality? Words just made sense to me in, in a way that nothing else really did. I knew I wanted to
1: write in some way or be creative in some way. And I sort of went through a lot of different ways of thinking, how could that be a career? For a little while, I tried screenwriting and in college, I went through a theater program. I really, really loved theater and I loved the storytelling aspect of theater. And I did some playwriting and I did some acting. And a lot of that obviously plays into the theater book that I wrote later because nothing is ever wasted. (laughs) The, The 12 years you accidentally spent doing something completely different will become a book someday. I shouldn't say accidentally because I really did love it. And I loved the communal feeling of it. And one of the reasons I've felt really drawn to children's literature and to YA is because there's a really supportive artistic community that I I hadn't found since I left theater. So I was doing a lot of dramatic writing and I liked that, but I just wasn't feeling as drawn to the actual stories. I wasn't feeling as strong about my writing as I wanted to. I was having to make myself sit down and write and I'd never had to do that before It just took me a while to really let myself get back to the stories I always loved most, which were genre fiction stories, you know, middle grade fantasy and YA didn't really exist when I was younger. But as soon as I found out about YA, I was so thrilled in my head. I was like, oh, you, you could be a writer when you grow up. But for some reason there was a block that I wouldn't write the kind of stories that I loved as a kid, the ones that, that were most exciting to me and the ones that I read a hundred times over, it never occurred to me that I would write those stories, which is so strange that I felt like, oh, you have to grow up and write screenplays because that's a career or you have to grow up and write adult novels because that's what writers do. (laughs) I sort of put my dream through a couple different channels and they weren't quite working. And then I wrote a screenplay, which I was having so much fun with, that I decided to try to write it again as a novel. And it was very much a middle grade fantasy type book. And I wrote it and I sort of fell into having an agent for that. And it didn't turn out to be the right agent for me. And it didn't turn out to be the right book to be out there as my first book. At the time, that was a very painful revelation. At the time, I didn't think of myself as very young, but I was, Um, (laughs) I was like right out of college. That is super young, yeah, a little (laughs) baby. (laughs) I was a baby. Um, And so I was like, it's about to happen, I'm gonna do this. And it didn't work out that way. But the funny thing is that book not working out was what proved to me that those were the kinds of books I wanted to write because even when everything fell apart and it didn't happen, I still wanted to write those books more than I wanted to do anything else. I was like, this is, I still love this. I want to wake up tomorrow and start a new one, Mm. even though this was a really hard experience. And it didn't end where I thought it would end and it didn't take me where I wanted to be yet. But now I see where I want to be. And that's when I started to look into grad programs and think more seriously about writing the kinds of books I always loved. So it took me a while to come full circle to that.
0: Do you mind me asking how old you were by then where you were like, okay, you know what? I'm going to want to deepen and further my craft, so I'm going to start looking for MFA programs.
1: So I was 24. I was really depressed. I just binge watched the last season of Lost. I think it was the last season. Um, I was just like, that was all I could do, was go to my job. I was a baker at the time.
0: Oh my god, that's so cool. By the way, side note, that's awesome.
1: It was such a good job for writing, because you get up before anybody's up, so I would get up at three in the morning, the world is completely dark, you're alone with your story ideas, you think about them all the way into work, you make muffins, you, <laughs> you, you, you're still thinking about your story intermittently while you're making frosting, and and then you know people start to show up, and the world kind of wakes up. And by the time you're done, it's you know 11 in the morning. You're done with your workday. You go home. You write everything you just thought about for eight hours. Okay,
0: real talk. You don't take a nap before you start writing, because I would be napping.
1: No, if I napped, the day was over. <laughs> <laughs> the second I let myself fall asleep, it was just like done. So I would I would just get you know get a couple pages out, you know get out as much as I could, and then <sighs>
0: and then fall asleep. Were you exhausted by the time you got home and you pulled out your laptop, typewriter, notebook? Like, were you hazy or were you on a high because you had such a great time baking?
1: Yeah, I was on a high because wow. baking is so kinetic, but it doesn't really require that much of your conscious mind. Once you have the rhythm, it's just like this thing that you're, it's just this, this constant process that you're going through. It's not sitting down and staring at the, a the computer and thinking, okay, now I need another sentence. Right.
0: It's almost like showering.
1: Yeah, yeah, so something about that really helped get my creativity going and then by the time it was at like a full boil I would get to go home and sit down for a couple of hours and then and then
0: I would collapse like very
1: completely. I had no life outside of baking and writing and I so I don't so I, I can't recommend that for everybody.
0: I know you make it sound like very fun, but let's be real. This is hard work. Just any kind of world and cooking, baking, it's tough. It's like you're sweating, it's backbreaking, it's How long were you able to do this for?
1: I did that for two years and then I got another job doing that in New York and that's when I stepped back from it because the place I'd been working before that for a while was a very mom and pop sort of. Oh so it's a little bit more relaxed setting. Yeah and it's sort of a little warm a little bit like there's a lot of work to do but you also sort of get to do a few of your own things you get to decide what the specials are and you get to sort of You know, make a couple things that you like to make, and kind of go with with the flow of the job. And then I got a job working at like a big scale bakery in New York. I never did this with a job before or or since, but I went through the training for that, the two weeks of training, and then I said, I don't think I'm the right person for this job. Partly because I could tell that that level of intensity, I would just collapse when I got home. Is that around the time when you were looking for MFA? Yeah, I had a very specific goal in going to get an MFA. I wanted to learn how to revise. I could write a draft of a novel. I could stare at it afterwards and say, (laughs) this needs to be better. (laughs) I could move pieces of it around and fiddle with it, but fiddling with it wasn't revising it. (laughs) And I knew that, but I didn't know how to do it yet. And I knew that there were ways that I could learn that that didn't involve MFA programs, but I had in my head, I actually, when I was in undergrad, I did my undergrad in three years specifically because I really loved the idea of doing an MFA that was art specific later, since I already knew that. And since I knew I could finish my degree in three years. I didn't leap immediately into that, but it was always in my head. I'm making space to do this at some point if I want to, and if I find the right program, and if I have a strong reason to go back and pursue this for something specific. And I think that part of that came from when I went through an acting phase. (laughs) I did a sort of conservatory thing when I was younger, and I saw how helpful intensive arts training can be. It wasn't necessarily that I wanted the structure of an academic program. It was more that I knew that there's sort of a catalyst effect that getting to focus on making art in a very intense, bounded experience can do for you. So I was already sort of aware of that and I loved that experience and I wanted to have it again. And I considered going through some sort of arts program instead of doing a traditional undergrad, but I kind of talked myself into doing the traditional undergrad, which I don't really regret but in my head I was like okay at some point if i find the right kind of art to find the right kind of writing and i find a right program i will go for it it took me a couple years to really attach to a kind of storytelling that i was so excited about and felt really right and felt so much more moment- momentum when i sat down to work on these stories i felt so much more attached to them but i also wanted to tell them as best i could and i felt like there was potentially a way to do that by going through an mfa program it's one of many possible avenues to get to that. I really like arts communities, (laughs) especially partly because I'm really introverted and really shy. Mm. (laughs) And having that ability to step into that pre-existing community and feel how much is there and how much knowledge is there and how much support is there. I don't think I realized that that's another part of what I was chasing at the time. I, I, I just had this very specific craft goal. I was like, I need to learn how to revise books or I'll never be able to write them in the way that they'll actually be out there in the world. My big problem with revision, I learned later through this MFA program was not that I was unwilling to change things. I changed everything. It did teach me a lot about having an editorial eye on your own work. It taught me a lot about how structure can help you strengthen your work as you revise and all of these things. I had a little bit of that from dramatic writing background, but it helped me a lot to see it in this other context. But one of the major things I learned was that I was not revising well because I wasn't trusting what my stories were in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I was revising everything for other people. I was revising the heart right out of my work because I was so untrusting of of the stories that I wanted to tell. And I was so open to everyone else's feedback. And I was so open to making any change without filtering it through what I wanted the story to be. And so I really needed to find a place that helps you cultivate your own confidence and your own voice and your own work. And I didn't really know that that's what I needed at the time, but but it helped a lot. And I think it has helped for me. I know it has in, in going out into the world of publishing because you get really, really great feedback from some of the editors you work with. I worked with some extremely brilliant, extremely insightful people. But at the same time, you have to know what your story is first. You have to be able to take that feedback and see what the other person is saying. You have to be able to be the one who sees how that actually plays out in your story. You know, an editor can tell you what they see and what they think there should be more of, but a lot of it is about cultivating your own ability to see your own work. That's a big part of what I got out of the MFA program. The other part I wasn't really expecting was the strength of the community because I hadn't really known you could find that outside of something like theater where you're working to tell a story together. So it's naturally a communal story effort. The program I went to was very much, it it felt like everyone was helping each other tell all of these stories. Everyone just would dive right in and say, what are you working on? Everything would just take off from there. There was a lot of cross-pollination. So people weren't separated out into picture book writers and middle grade writers and fantasy writers and realistic fiction writers. Everybody's Strengths and skills were strengthening everyone else's. Ooh, yeah. So I, I really liked that because I don't really like false boxes we put everybody in when it comes to writing. <laughs> Just the idea that, like, you know, certain kinds of writers should be over here and commercial writers should be over here and literary writers should be over here. <laughs> we don't all need our own corners. And in fact, our, our work all gets better when we see the possibilities of different kinds of storytelling and the skills and the strengths and the little bits we can
0: take back to our own work. I love that. Okay, wait, hold on. So I need to know, did you introduce VCFA to Corey, your partner? Or I don't think you both met there, right? We did. Um... Oh my god, that's so cute. Wait, okay, I need to hear this story. This is so adorable. Okay, this is the most
1: ridiculous me cute. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Okay, so Corey's been teaching there more recently, but we were both students when we met. (gasps) Oh my God, that's so sweet. So I had been there. Corey started a little bit before me, and it wasn't my first semester there. I think it was my second semester there, so I hadn't quite met everybody yet, and I kind of vaguely knew about Corey because it was a very small program, and so you kind of vaguely know everyone a little bit, but you know, the first semester you're just sort of meeting your classmates and you're meeting your new advisors and all of this stuff. So I went back for the second semester and we have these workshops and they're a mix of everyone in the program. And so it's about, you know, maybe 10 or 12 students. And so I get my workshop packet, which is, you know, everyone's pieces. I read one that I loved so much that when I saw the person who wrote it across There's a little green in the center of our campus and I saw Corey across the green and I ran across the green all the way up to them and went. I just really want you to know that I love Chippy.
0: Oh my god, that is so romantic. How cute. And then we were
1: friends for a long time. Nothing immediately happened from there. Um, we were both with other people at the time. We just became writing friends from there. Aww. We just had a wonderful time being in that program together. And from there, we stayed friends. And then when I moved to the Midwest, how many years ago was that now? A while ago. And Corey was also living in the Midwest. And I would, that's when I started
0: to visit them a lot. Wait, was it coincidentally that Corey moved out to the Midwest? Or was it because of you? Or like, how are the chances that you're both in the Midwest?
1: No, again, that was just a
0: big coincidence. And I mean, it sounds like it's faded and meant to be.
1: It wasn't a coincidence that I drove like three hours out of Chicago every couple of weekends to see them. (gasps) That wasn't a coincidence. Every time I drove, like the last hour, there'd always be like the most dramatic weather in the world. It was like the universe was trying to make it as dramatic and difficult as possible for me to get to them. And I was like, no, I'm going to make it. (laughs) There
0: was always a huge lightning storm. (laughs) I mean, I think the universe is trying to add the more romantic elements to it. You know what I mean? Like you're like fighting through the storm to get there. And it's like, I have arrived. And you're like soaking from the (laughs) rainstorm. And it's like, whoa, okay. I think Amy really likes me. That's a really good point. Oh my God, you guys are so cute. Okay, may I ask a super personal question because it's something that I've been going through with my girlfriend and it's when and how you decided having a child was right for you both. And was there one person that was more hesitant about not wanting to have a kid? And like, if that was the case, how were you guys able to decide, all right, you know what, let's just go through with it? Because also, this is a huge-ass investment, let's be real. That's why I always tell people, listen, if people in the LGBTQIA plus community want to have children, you know they will really love the child because it's an investment. All our money goes down the drain on top of, like, a lifelong investment, saving up for college, and you want to provide a really wonderful, loving environment for that kid. Or forget about having a kid because it's not fair to the kid, you know? So, I have a completely
1: unhelpful answer. Um... (laughs) I feel bad because you just laid this out like so in such a it's such like a detailed and caring and like thoughtful way. And my my answer is like going to take the little Jenga stick right out <laughs> of your tower. And I'm sorry. Let it fall, baby boo. <laughs> Our little one Maverick is from Corey's previous relationship.
0: That removed all the difficulty of decision-making. Okay, that's
1: awesome. When I showed up, the decision had already been made, already a baby, already awesome. I did not have to decide anything, which actually helped me a lot because I always love the idea of having kids. To be perfectly honest, I don't have any problem admitting this. I've never been able to imagine having kids, me personally, like physically being the person who has them. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the person I fell in love with already had a wonderful small person mm-hmm. attached to them, <laughs> it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't something I like, I didn't set out to like find someone who, who already had a kid. (laughs) Can
0: you imagine like, can't be with you unless you have a baby attached?
1: Yeah. That'd be be a strange dating app, but it it kind of worked out in this very beautiful way because there was already so much love. I just showed up and, and Maverick has a great dad. Corey and her ex both really wanted to have a kid. And, um, actually with his dad right now. And it's like, you know, it's just this really wonderful sort of thing where it all came together in a very good way. I didn't have to make that call. I like to tell people that I slid sideways into parenting. So... Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a very different process than I think a lot of people go through. And it is interesting because Mav has known me from being a tiny baby. So I've been part of Mav's life for pretty much
0: the whole time. Well, yes, you are mommy for sure.
1: Yeah, the name that
0: Mav picked for me is Mama Rose, which is so (gasps) sweet. That is so sweet. I'm not gonna lie. It sounds like you should have your own baking company named Mama Rose's Bakery. Boom.
1: We do sometimes talk about, you know, the possibility of having another kid, but I I think that we're pretty set where we are right now. (laughs) Every once in a while, we have the conversation and then we're
0: like, should we? Probably. No. I'm so happy for you all that you are at where you're at right now congratulations on that on a very personal level our life experiences make us who we are as storytellers so this all relates you know what I mean but I do want to get into like the books that you were I'm so excited to hear so was your first story the one that you were working on at the bakery shop?
1: So the first published novel I have, actually, I didn't start until my very last month of my last semester of my grad program. I had a bunch of stories I was working on in the program, and I was learning a lot as I was trying to set myself a lot of craft challenges, and I was trying to write these very ambitious stories, and they weren't coming together, and they weren't coming together. And then I started something in my last month just for fun. I didn't really know if it was going to be anything, but I just sort of let everything else go, all the stuff that where it felt like I was doing hard work, but it wasn't quite coming together. And I let all that go and I wrote something just to, just to enjoy writing it. And then that was what I felt like all of the work that I'd done came together in that piece. And my advisor was really excited about it. I sent her like half of a novel and she said, I really think this is it. You're really doing something here. She also, it was a sci-fi novel. And she was like, you might've heard that I don't really like science fiction that much. And I was like, no, (laughs) but but it turned out she really enjoyed this piece which I was I was really glad that she wasn't a sci-fi person because I might not have sent it to her it's like all these different ways that we stop ourselves and we Mm -hmm. censor ourselves and we (laughs) and obviously if someone you know an an agent or an editor says that they're not interested in a certain kind of thing like you want to be respectful but with this particular teacher it was nice to feel like I'd sent her something that surprised her and that we were both really excited about and I finished that novel in about six months after the program ended. And then I made sure I revised it. Um, I actually sent Corey an email, a very important email after I finished my book. And I said, tell me not, it was just all caps. And all it said was, tell me not to panic query. <laughs> and, and Corey went back immediately had said, do not send that query. And they got me on the phone and talked me through all the revisions I still should do, like that I knew I should do before I actually sent it out. So that was what ended up being my first book, um, which is Entangled. And that had a sequel called Unmade. And then Echo After Echo was my next book. So I don't think I've gone back to anything I've actually written from before the program, although I have since then come back to a couple ideas or things I had small pieces of before. I haven't come back to any of the full novels, but there are stories that I'd always had in my head or I'd written little pieces of that I have come back to since then. And one of those is The Brilliant Death. And The Brilliant Death is my Italian-inspired fantasy world. And I had so much fun writing that because that's the story that I think has been in my heart the longest. And I've been finding pieces of it since I was a kid. It's really been like this long, slow collecting process. I always knew that I was going to come back to it at some point, but it... Um, I'm glad that I waited on that one, which is hard because I I tend to be very impatient (laughs) and over ambitious about what I think I'm going to do. And I tend to sort of just throw myself at things. And I don't know why, I don't know what it was about that one. Maybe it was because it's something I've been thinking about since childhood. And since I read a lot of culturally inspired fantasy when I was a kid, and that was really some of my favorite storytelling. And so just to take a lot of my family's stories from where my father's family came from in Puglia and I started fusing those in my head with fantasy when I was really young and just knowing that that wasn't something I wanted to just throw out there to see if it worked I wanted to make sure like I had everything I needed to tell that story the Lost Coast is my book that just came out. And that one was, I knew that I wanted to write something set in Northern California in the Redwoods for a really long time. Yay, <laughs> I love the Redwoods. Me too. I moved to Northern California, when I was a teenager, moved to the Redwoods. And it was just so magical. And I wanted to write something that had that feeling in it mm. for a really long time, but I didn't know what the story was. So I just let myself wait to find the other piece of it for, for a while. And then once I had that piece, I, I just got to sort of run on that. That was really fun to write. And that's about a group of queer teen witches who one of them goes magically missing from her own body, and then they have to call another witch to help find
0: her. Oh, wow. Where are you getting all these ideas? You're like this well of ideas.
1: I wish I could just come up with story ideas sometimes, but I don't because I love writing them just as much as I actually love coming up with them. But I used to do this thing where I'd let myself write the first 40 pages of any story. For people who can't turn their story faucet off, here's some advice. Give yourself some time where you let yourself write the first like 30 pages of anything you want. Seriously, sometimes I would write when I was just started working on novels again, after doing dramatic writing for a long time, I would write like maybe 20 novel beginnings. And then I would look at all of them and maybe two of them, I would feel the story beyond that. And then I would have gotten to like, kind of, you know, enjoy and splash around in the other ones for a little bit. And some of them I would put away and say, I might find the rest of this story later. And some of them I would say, this didn't turn out to be anything. (laughs) This didn't turn out to have a voice I really want to write for the next 300 pages. So this doesn't, I have no idea what the plot of this is. It's not really something I need to work on. But usually I'd start to feel, you know, like a couple of the stories would really get their hooks into me beyond the shiny idea phase.
0: Yeah. I need to jump in here and ask you some Q&As from our listeners. Oh, sure. Because right now it makes sense with especially one of our listener questions, We have Stephen McPhail and he asked, this is super exciting about having you on the podcast. He said, I just finished Once and Future this morning and adore the book. The book has a really expansive cast of characters and I found them all likable and interesting. Do you have any tips for writing a large cast of supporting characters and how do you balance their development without taking away from the main plot?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, also, yeah, I did forget to mention once, I I, I was just thinking like, oh, I didn't say anything about Once and Future. That's the book I co-wrote with Corey, and we have a sequel coming out next year. And yay, congratulations. (laughs) And I must admit, very honest about this, it was absolutely Corey's idea from the jump. Like it was something that they were talking about writing. They're talking about writing Girl King Arthur for years. And I was the one who just was a ridiculous fan of this idea from the beginning, was like, please write that please write that book. I just want to read it. You know, I was very greedy for it. And so we finally got to the point where after a couple of years of that, Corey was like, okay, but only if you write it with me. And that was just a very happy sort of collaboration from the start. So yeah, as far as ensemble characters go, uh, we had a little bit of help in that with two writers, we each had a couple characters that we identified really strongly with. But I've always really been drawn to ensemble stories. Um, Lost Coast is very much an ensemble story. The Brilliant Death has more and more ensemble cast as you go into the sequel. And my first two books have, like, a it's a very sci-fi space opera. Like, you know, you've got your little ensemble on the spaceship. And so I, I'm always, always drawn to groups of characters because I think the more you let characters play off of each other, the more you learn about all of them. And the more you let their relationships evolve, the stronger everybody's character arcs get. I feel like I have a hard time with character arcs that almost seem to happen in a vacuum where it's just like one person and maybe they have a really strong antagonist, which is great. But like, I want to see people in a context. (laughs) And probably this is just me being greedy for friend groups and for lots of relationship possibilities because I like those in stories. So this is just preference, you know? Yeah. Those are innately better stories. So part of it I think is following your own enjoyment as a reader and trusting that if you like ensemble stories you should probably be writing them and and one of the best ways I think to start with that is to start with what about each character is something that you identify with it doesn't need to be something that is stolen from your life but it does have to be something that you understand on a deep level because if you're writing someone into the group just as a foil or just as a side character. I I think readers can feel that. Okay, I'm going to do the most ridiculous fantasy metaphor ever. (laughs) Sorry, but maybe not because this is what I do. So if your personality was like a crystal, it's like you need to break it with a hammer and give like a shard to each character. Mm. Um, There's something about that. It doesn't mean that everyone in the cast is just you walking around with a different face. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But just knowing that there's something in there that makes sense to you because that's where you start to develop how that character behaves in the world. I also really, really like to find if there's a theme in the story that is really strong and overarching, how does each character reflect that theme? What's the way that that they fit into what you're talking about in the story in a bigger way, because that's how the characters all feel necessary to the story, even if they don't have a ton of screen time. Mm. Also making sure that they each have something they want that is about them and their character arc. Again, even if it's someone who's not on the page for a lot of the time, what matters to them, what drives them? If you don't know that, then they'll end up feeling like someone who's only there to support or cut down the main characters. I think about this stuff a lot. Also, I'm going to give you one really weird piece of advice. Odd numbers are good. (laughs) If you're writing a group of characters, odd numbers are really helpful dramatically, I have found.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Since we are talking about Once and Future, we had another listener, Kate Drexel, who asked, what challenges did you face while writing Once and Future? A
1: lot of people ask us questions about balancing the retelling aspects with the new sort of elements that we're adding or the the ways that we've updated them. And that's been really fun actually. That's sort of balancing act is something I really enjoy as a writer. That's a very playful aspect of the writing that I've had a lot of fun with. I think the biggest challenge with these books, no wait, I know the biggest challenge with these books is that the plots are ridiculously complicated. <laughs> we threw so many writing challenges at ourselves in terms of making an ambitious plot and structure and getting a lot of story into our story. (laughs) you know, we don't necessarily do it consciously when we set out, but you start to realize like what you've done that's different from your other books or what you've done that is stretching you in a new way. And there's something really fun about that for the most part. But when Corey and I wrote a book together, it's like we doubled the amount of hard stuff we were trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes we look at each other and we're like, what, this is ridiculous. How are we trying to write all of this? And they're extremely fiddly books. So Corey and I are both writers where we've very often we'll write books where the pieces don't shift hugely. You know, you'll rewrite things or you'll decide to cut something or add something, but there's not a ton of structural shifting and swapping. And part of this has to do with the two point-of-view characters, so figuring out which scenes need to be happening from which point of view. But there's just there's also just so many story beats we need to hit. And just making them all happen in the right order and every time we get notes and we get revisions from our editor we have to shift things and once you shift one element of the story you have to shift so many things oh my gosh so it's funny because it hasn't actually been necessarily like big co-writing challenges or big story retelling challenges but these plots are are killer (laughs) (laughs) can you tell we're revising the sequel right now oh my gosh (laughs) I mean I love it I love how like big and wild it is but it is wild
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I am wishing you both luck with all of this. Oh, my goodness. But you you both have got this. I have no doubt. The second to last listener question from Tracy Kenworth. I was wondering about the amount of world building that goes into your novels. Do you keep Bibles? How much info do you include? That's a really good question,
1: too. I mean, that's hard because it varies a lot from story to story. So Once in the Future has a special story notebook that has a lot of world building information on in it, very much like a little magical endowed object that we carry around with us all the time when we're, we're working on the story. And that's been really helpful, especially with co-writers to have things that are important in one place, things like diagrams of the spaceship, because I can't remember where any of the rooms are. For other books, it varies. One of my favorite ways of doing the world building, when I was working on The Brilliant Death and the sequel to that, which is called The Storm of Life, and that's going to be out in January. So when I worked on that world and when I worked on those stories, I would write the stories themselves in longhand in a really, really big notebook. And so I would draft the really, really rough version of the rough draft longhand down one side of the page. And then on the other page... The facing page, I would write world building notes, I would draw maps, and I'm awful at drawing. So this is not inspired, beautiful. This is just to help me, <laughs> just to keep me on track and to help me, you know, flesh out the world as I'm going. Now with that world, I, I'd been thinking about it for a long time since I was young, but a lot of it could still feel really nebulous. So it was really helpful to have a place that was in tandem with the story itself, I could give myself notes. So it helped me to not overload the narrative with world building details, but to have them there for my reference and also in case I needed them later. I really, really recommend that if you're working on any fantasy that has its own world. That's really not our world or that's really, you know, anything where you feel like you're building your own world. I really, really like that method because it grows with your story, is always kind of there in conversation with what you're writing, but it doesn't necessarily feel like you're trying to jam everything about this world you're building into the writing as you go. So that's been one of my favorite ways of doing it.
0: That was so good yet again. Thank you so much for that, Amy. The final listener question from Georgia Kilner. She asked, hi, I was wondering if being openly queer has affected your journey to publication and if you had any tips for aspiring queer writers like myself.
1: When I first started publishing in 2013, there was still almost no queer genre fiction in YA. It was Melinda Lowe and it was Alex London And I don't want to say that was it because I don't want to exclude a few other people who are probably there doing good work, but it was very limited. It was a very tough idea to think about whether or not those books were going to exist in our field and who was going to get to write them and where the publishers going to get more on board with them and was there going to be more space for that. So at the time I was working on a book that had queer characters in it. None of my books really started coming together until I started writing queer characters into them. The queerness in Entangled and Unmade isn't as central as it is in my later books, but it is there. And I I do like to point that out because I think it's important. It's not like I censored it out and then later I put it in. I was writing my way into my own queerness. I was, you know, in my life. It took me a while to feel those stories were... I just didn't see them in the world. And there's something about when you first see them in the world, that makes you feel like, oh, this is possible. Mm. And I remember reading Ash and and, and then getting to meet Melinda Lowe soon afterwards and thinking, wow, like this book gets to exist. Maybe other books like this get to exist. And that, that really did unlock a lot of things in terms of me feeling like those possibilities were there. By the time I was done writing those first two books, I was so ready to lean into writing about queerness and about queer main characters. And I just, I couldn't imagine doing anything else at that point. So at the time when it was the field was still pretty limited, I just I just threw myself headfirst into a book and was terrified that no one would want it and was terrified that I was ending the career that I just started that I'd also been building up to for my whole life. That was a hard space to be in for a while. Echo After Echo took the longest of any of my books by quite a bit. And I am really so glad that I didn't stop myself from doing it, even though I didn't know if the market was there yet, even though I didn't know if there was going to be enough space, if publishers were going to open things up. And they have a lot. And I have seen so much growth. It is a huge, huge difference from where we were then to where we are now. And for me, I think I really wasn't able to write stories that felt as exciting to me without engaging with that in some way. That's just me, though. I also don't think queer writers should feel limited. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone should be able to say, "Well, you can't write about a straight main character ever again," because you know <laughs> I've seen that happen to to people in our industry and that very strange form of backlash. It's not about narrowing anybody in to only writing a certain kind of story. It's more just that feeling that there is room for your story if you want to write about queerness, and you don't need to write about the difficulty of being queer anymore, like that, ha- that isn't the only narrative that's available to you anymore. For a long time, I feel like that was something that was more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And it's not that those books are the problem. It's just, they're not being room for any other books was the problem. I-, I really do think that's starting to change. There's starting to be a little bit more representation within publishing. see more people coming up who are representing queer voices within publishing houses. And I think that that makes a huge difference. And I think that we're starting to see that readers want these books, need these books, love these books. I think teenagers don't feel as limited in what they should be reading. Or I guess all I could say is that it's a really good time to be a queer writer. It's a really exciting time to be putting stories out there and to know that Readers are so ready; for, they're beyond
0: ready for them. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about Rainbow Writers Workshop that you co-founded?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, the Rainbow Writers Workshop—it's a weekend. The Writing Barn in Austin. Corey and I co-founded it a couple years ago. Uh, so we recently had our second workshop this year, and it is an entirely in-community event. So the Writing Barn gives us the space and the support and the structure to do our workshop, but we also get to decide how we want to run it. We get to decide what is involved in terms of the programming, in terms of how we want to put things together. So far, Corey and I have been there as the authors. We will at some point hand it over to new people. So there will be more people from our community who have that great craft knowledge and that great publishing experience, bringing that in and sharing that with the workshoppers. And then we also bring in one publishing professional who's also part of the queer community who has a really unique perspective and can help aspiring authors. I don't think we've had anyone there yet who was already published, but we had a couple people who were agented and some, so people are coming in at different places. You know, if you're, if you're just starting out as a writer and you're really excited, this could be a great place for you. If you are feeling like you're going to be ready to query soon, this could be a great place for you. It's a really wonderful event and everybody bonds so fast. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's been really special. So we're going to have year three next year, and it's in the spring. And we um, do a lot of work to raise scholarship money because we want it to be as equitable as possible. We want we want there to be a real diversity of writers and voices in that room. We don't want it to be only people who can pay a certain amount to attend workshops. Right. You know, I was talking about MFA programs earlier, but I understand how much money and privilege is involved in for most people and in attending certain kinds of programming and getting certain kinds of education. And so Corey and I work really hard to make this weekend an absolute crash course in craft, in publishing. We try to just put as many tools on the table for our writers as possible, because we know that those opportunities can be really
0: hard to access, especially for marginalized people. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. Do you mind if we wrap it up with one more question? Okay. What are some books that you would love for our community to check out that have inspired you with your own writing?
1: So the first one that came to mind for me is really strange because, (laughs) okay, I tend to get writing craft advice from really weird places. So a book that I've read really recently that I took a ton of storytelling and craft advice from, but isn't technically about writing at all. It's a book about physics. What? (laughs) It's called The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. He's an Italian physicist. It's a very slim book. You do not need to be a physicist or any kind of mathematician to read it. It's very accessible. It's about time and perception, about the way we create our experience of reality. And so a lot of that innately ties in with storytelling, at least for me, like I could see all of these ways, all of these connections. My brain was so lit up when I was reading this. And then I swear it's not only me because I went online and talked about it and like five other writers popped up and said, oh, I, I had that experience too. One of the books that really blew my mind in terms of what writing can do. And also one of the first times I saw a really deeply, deeply queer book that was really important to me, uh, was Written on the Body by Jeanette Winterson. <gasps> me
0: too. I read that in college and I fell in love with it. It was so good. That was the first time I was like, shit, this is how you write a book. Right, that's the thing. Where you're like, oh, this is what sentences do. Yes. Oh my God, I'm so happy that you mentioned that book. Like I have not heard, I don't think one person on the show yet has mentioned it themselves. Like I've brought it up, but I don't remember anyone else bring it up on their own. This is one of my favorite books. It opened up with that question, what is love without loss or something?
1: Yeah. Why is the measure of love loss or something like that? Yeah.
0: I remember that line for so long, for years, and then I only just recently forgot about it. But yes, so you you still have it ingrained in your head, but look at how powerful that one question. I'm really glad
1: you had that experience because I... Such a big, those such an important thing. And then there's one thing I, I like to throw out there when I get the chance because I think they're really, really beautiful books in terms of finding an absolute gem in the YA backlist. There are these novels written by Sarah McCary. The first one is All Our Pretty Songs, and then the second one is Dirty Wings, and the third one is About a Girl. And About a Girl is the one that has the two girls kissing on the cover with the vines kind of like over them. The way I describe them is they're kind of like myth punk and They've got a lot of queerness in them. About a Girl is definitely the most like on page and in terms of exploring queer relationships. And they're just gorgeously written and they just, they hit so many of the things that I love and that I'm always secretly looking for in books. So I I like to... uh to throw those out there because I always want more people to find them and love on them.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for all of these recs. Why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you online to say hi? It's just Amy Rose Capetta
1: on Twitter and Instagram is the same. And my website is amyrosecapetta.com.
0: And that wraps up our episode with Amy Rose Capetta. Amy, thank you so much for our conversation. I had such a great time talking with you. You shared so many actionable crafting tips that are going to be so helpful for our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to drop by and say hi to Amy over on Twitter at Amy Rose Capetta. If you'd love to hear our full extended conversation where we chatted for nearly two hours talking about all the life things, you can access it right now as a patron. So head over to patreon.com slash 88cupsoftea to find out more. Don't forget, if you head over to her show notes page, you'll find the resources and books mentioned in her episode, tweetable quotes, and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. We collaborated with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults to curate a thoughtful series of personal essays and podcast episodes just like today's episode so that you can feel empowered about the writer's journey. Vermont College of Fine Arts is a global community of artists continuously redefining what it means to be an arts college. They're accredited by the New England Commission on Higher Education and offers the Master of Fine Arts degree in a variety of fields, including writing, writing for children and young adults, and writing and publishing, along with an international MFA in Creative Writing and Literary Translation. With low residency and fully residential options, VCFA has a graduate program to fit your needs. You can learn more at vcfa.edu. For the specially curated series of essays and podcast episodes that I was mentioning before, we made sure to share intimate stories about the life of a writer, exploring the art and the heart of writing, and throw in some incredible step-by-step articles to improve your writing craft. These stories will guide and uplift every storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our community. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash VCFA, and that's 88cupsoftea.com slash VCFA. Have a super productive week, and I will catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.